The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 319 for Monday, March 7th, 2011. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you, the listeners, help make the agenda. You send in your questions, your tips, your comments. We do our best to research them, answer them, relay them, and anything that we can to help you learn more about your Mac and other Apple devices here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. And there, I mean here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. And for the next hour or so, we will both be here in your ears or your speakers or wherever it is that uh, your travels bring us with you. Uh, how are you doing today, John? Things going well? I'm doing great. We're, uh, you know, I think, uh, well, I'm not going to talk about the weather and how all the snow washed away. Oh, no, it did. Oh, that's no. good. So I think spring has sprung. I, uh, I think uh, or it's going to spring soon. Yeah, we, we lost a, a bunch of our ice, but and we still got probably, I don't know, six, eight inches of snow left. But that hasn't that has yet to melt. Yeah. Yeah. I saw the picture of your uh, your driveway and you're lamenting the uh, yeah, the ice the reduced uh, <laughs> reduced yeah. uh, real estate. That's right. That's right. All right. So, uh, you know, let's dive. Uh, let's dive in and go with Rick here because uh, we have a lot to go through. I have I have no doubt we won't make it all the way through our agenda, but that is OK. So Rick wrote uh until last Thursday, my iPhone 3G synced to my Mac Pro faultlessly. Since then, however, it will not even show up in iTunes, and I'm running 10.1.2. This came in before the 10.2 update uh, was released. I have fixed permissions. I have run Disk Warrior. I've tried other iTunes libraries. I even tried a different clean user account. All didn't help. I have put my iPhone on other Macs, and it does show up fine. While I could possibly move to a different machine, I would rather not. He also followed up and said that he's able to sync to his old iPod just fine. So I did some research, John, and I found Apple has a knowledge base article, and I'm going to mention two. Uh, so we'll link to both of them. TS-1591 that talks about all the various troubleshooting options, including reinstalling iTunes, many of the things that he uh, that he tried. And then at the very end, John, it refers to uh, another knowledge base article titled uh, or talking about reinstalling the Apple mobile device service. Uh, apparently, this is a service that affects iTunes from seeing the iPhone, the iPad, the iPod touch and the 5G iPod nano. So all devices that are running iOS as opposed to the older iPods, which ran, you know, whatever that it is that they run. So I, and, and it's it, and we'll put the link out because there's no reason to have to remember it. But the process involves deleting iTunes and then deleting a, a text file in the system library extensions folder and also digging into the package receipts and deleting one for Apple mobile device support and then reinstalling iTunes, which presumably will see that those two are missing and, and repopulate it. But very, very interesting to uh, to see that. I never even realized this was out there. So. Any, wow, any thoughts on this, John? Uh, that's that's really getting kind of deep, especially a kernel extension. That surprises me. I, I, um, I know. I know. Uh, the only thing that occurs to me, is, and one thing that I find is, is always helpful to uh, to diagnose or try to pinpoint yep. problems with peripherals is uh, my pal Hardware Growler. Oh, right. Right. Which uh, is, I think is a, it's, a, it's a good general purpose tool because 
when I plug in any device, whether it be USB or FireWire, or even a network device, you'll, you'll get a little notification showing the, the steps that the computer is taking to recognize it. And, you know, one of the first ones I'll see, it says, oh, USB, look, I, I see something called an iPhone, and then it'll it'll continue with that. So right. um, that's the only thought. Other than that, um, nice work. But wow, that you have to, yeah, you have to muck around at that level is, is uh, kind of <laughs> disturbs me. It, it does, yeah. Um but, you know, so the other thing would be to just to look in system profiler, right, and make sure that the the iPhone is showing up as a USB device. Um, I would presume even if the mobile, uh, you know, the, the, the mobile device service is not launched, that it would at the very least show up as a USB device. So you can know that, yeah, the machine's seeing it. But, of course, testing it on another Mac uh, ensures that the device is working. So, mm-hmm. yeah, very, very interesting. Um, that that even existed and no idea. So good, uh, good advice to share. Moving on to Gearhard. Gearhard writes, uh, well, this gets, this gets very interesting. Okay. He says a few days ago, my Mac pro developed a serious fault. I cannot eject any disc images or USB drives without doing a reboot. I ran maintenance scripts. I repaired permissions. I cleared the PRAM. Nothing. Uh, we've had a little bit of an email back and forth with Gerhard, and uh, he said the error message that he was seeing was that the disc was in use. Um, and he again tried, you know, forced option injecting from disk utility, various tools and no luck. So the next question, if it says it's in use, the next question is to figure out exactly how or what. Uh, we're using what's using it. Right. And my, my, the only real way I know how to do this, John, and maybe, you know, another way, maybe you don't, uh, is to use a terminal command called LSOF. And we've talked about this before, but I want to talk about exactly how to use it. And we'll probably run a little article on TMO on this because some of this terminal stuff is easier to see when you look at it. But the idea is if you run LSOF from the terminal, it will show you all the open files. Now that's not, entirely helpful uh, because that's a lot of stuff. Uh, So you can do one of two things. You want to search through that list of open files for the name of the drive that you're trying to uh, eject. And, uh, and so I use the grep command. I I say LSOF and space pipe grep and send it out there. But uh, you can also just use terminals, find command. And, and it will, uh, it will show you the name of the, the program and it might be some background process, uh, Gerhard, but uh, but something out there is uh, is running and saving files or keeping files open on that device. I'd sure be curious to know what it is, because that's a that's a strange one that it's going and doing it to every single device. Yeah. Do you have anything on that, John? Absolutely. Good. I'm going to surprise you. Mm. <laughs> it's a good surprise. Go. <laughs> um, so one thing you may want to try now, it's not a default option, but we recently talked about this, this uh, really slick utility called FS Eventer, right? That draws in the ability of something called uh, FS events in Mac OS 10, which uh, in a nutshell are file system events that will tell you if something in a particular directory has changed. Um, but there's a checkbox in FS Eventer that's normally not checked. Um, so you may want to try this as well as get FS Eventer and and it's listed under experimental, but I found it works. And, and it's a checkbox saying list of all open files. And I, I think it's doing same thing, pretty much what LSOF is doing. But sure. it shows it in a nice, happy uh, graphical format. 
you know, so it's going to show you everything and, and you may get a hint of, uh, you know, who is causing the problem here. Now, the other thing I noticed, Dave, though, I don't know if Gerhard, hope I got that right. Yep. Is running the latest version of Mac OS 10 here. He wasn't specific. And, mm. you know, whenever you, you know, get in touch with us, uh, the, the more specific you can give us, the better. But I tried this, Dave. I, I tried opening some files on either USB or network attached disks and then try to eject them. Yep. And what I got was a dialogue. For example, I'm going to, going to read you. It's very short and I don't think it'll put you to sleep. Um, but when I tried this with a file that I knew was open on the volume, I got the following error message. The disk Macintosh HD couldn't be ejected because QuickTime player is using it. That's perfect. That's kind of what you're looking for, isn't it? And it says quit the application and try to eject the disk again. And a, a little, okay. What's doing this, you ask? What's doing this, John? <laughs> and I found this out. So there's something... That, that's why I'm wondering if he's not running the latest OS. Uh, and I, I found what's, what is doing this for you. If you go to System, Library, Core Services, there's a little ditty in there called Unmount Assistant Agent. Hmm. Which is what's throwing up that message. Because actually I found that out because I did a screenshot of it and using Snaps Pro 10... And it typically titles or one mode is that it'll, the, the title of the snapshot will be the process that you're taking, uh, that right. you're in when you're taking a picture of it. Right. So I'm wondering if that service is either not there because he may not be running the latest version of OS 10 or it's damaged or missing. So, so I guess I'm, I'm scratching my head because from what I've seen, the OS should be smart enough to give you the exact message that I told you here, which is, is identifying the application. Right. That's holding on to the file that's preventing it from being ejected, which is, which is a good thing. So I, I don't know why that didn't come up. Well, you know, I, I have seen situations where that doesn't come up. And I think when it doesn't, it, I think it only comes up for apps that are like uh, foreground apps, right? Okay. Like QuickTime, you know, that sort of thing. It, I don't think that process triggers when it's held in place by a background app. I could be wrong, but that, that's what I seem to remember. Okay, no, that makes sense, because I tried with a couple, and I did, just did it quickly with movie files, and it was either QuickTime Player or FLV. Or, so, so, yeah, so it could be a, you know, some daemon or something that... Right. Yeah, so it only operates at a, at a higher level, perhaps. But, right, uh, right. yeah, see if, see if you got that in, in uh, you know, the location we mentioned. Yeah, it's fascinating. Maybe reapply, uh, you know, you want to reapply a, a recent, you know, like you suggest, you know, a recent system update. Maybe Maybe that file isn't there for whatever reason, or it's damaged, or... Yeah. Interesting. And, and then you'll get that info. And so, uh, all right. Uh, so we have a, an interesting question from Mark about how to uh, use filters to divide up email. And we'll play that in a minute. But first I want to talk about our first sponsor for this show, which is circus ponies with notebook notebook is available for both the Mac and the iPad. Uh, and the idea behind notebook is that you use it to store, uh, data about a particular project or a class you're taking. Maybe when you launch it, you get the familiar white line notebook view and you can type right into it from with your keyboard, of course, uh, and, you know, tab in and do a, an outline kind of hierarchy list. You can create multiple pages and you can store different things on the different pages inside there. But the cool part comes when you can start pulling things in like PDFs or pictures or even audio files. You could record the uh, lecture for a class that you go to and take your notes right there. And then that way you've got the recording if you have to go back and you want to check it. Uh, 
it will then sync back and forth with the iPad. So you can take notes or uh, otherwise edit your notebooks on the iPad and sync it back and forth with your Mac. Uh, Notebook is, of course, from Circus Ponies at CircusPonies.com. The iPad version is $29.99. The Mac version is $49.95 and comes with the ability to get uh, a cheaper version for 20 bucks uh, via an academic license if you're a student or teacher at pretty much any qualifying uh, school, including uh, uh, K through 12 as well as uh, beyond. There is a 30 day free trial for the Mac version that you can get from circusponies.com. And, and the iPad version, of course, is found in the Mac App Store, but you can find or in the uh, uh, iTunes App Store. You can find information, of course, at circusponies.com. All right, John. And now. It's time to hear from Mark. Hey, John and Dave. Mark from Temecula, California. After my day job, I'm the president of a nonprofit parent volunteer organization. And at the first of the month, we when we send out our invoices, we get slammed with emails from uh, from our members who have questions about what they're seeing on their invoices. So much email, it's too much for one volunteer parent to handle. However, it's not too much for two parents to handle if we could split the load up a little bit. I'm wondering if you guys know of a way to uh, take, uh, you know, maybe some some mail rule or some uh, some app, something off the shelf, where I could take, a, you know, an email that comes into a IMAP or Pop account, and when it's the first email, it goes one direction. When it's the second email, it goes in another direction, and the third email, well, that goes back to the first person. And then that way we can have two parent volunteers each getting, uh, you know, just a, a half of the uh, the email load that's coming in on this. Or even if I could take all the emails that come in between midnight and noon and send that to one volunteer and all those emails from noon to midnight and send it to another volunteer, that would be helpful. If you could think of some, I'd just love to know how you would skin this cat short of writing some involved PHP script and cron job. Uh, let me know what you guys, uh, how you guys would handle this. Um, here's where you cut me off. And so we shall. All right, uh, John, let's pass this one back and forth, but you, uh, go ahead. You start. I'm going to start because I, I'm just, I, I think I got it. All right. And I ran into this recently. So, so a mail rule should do this for you, but not the default list of conditions that you get in mail. So I, I looked at the mail rules. You know, I, I built a few that they will, you know, key on certain information in the header of the email. Yep. To uh, you know, put in a certain mailbox, which is how how I organize things. Sure. You know, for example, if things are sent to John at MacObserver.com, I put them in the Mac Observer folder. Uh, okay. Or mailbox. So I looked. So I looked at the rule list, and I looked at the list of conditions. And you know, it starts off. You define a rule. You go to preferences, rules. And then you start defining a rule, and it'll say, you know, if any or all the conditions are met. And the first pull down that you click on gives you a whole bunch of conditions here. And so I saw a couple that were key to date. Date sent and date received. I'm like, yeah, it's, that's really not going to do it for him. You know, that, that's not very helpful. Right. But then something that I just had to do made me think of this. So if you look at the bottom of this list, it says edit header list. And header is the information at the beginning of the email that mail app displays to you. So I clicked on that. And, you know, there's a few in there from to CC subject. I added one called X dash bin there. And we'll talk about why in a moment. But then here's where, where I had, you know, my, uh, you know, a flash of a, a genius, not genius. <laughs> I won't say that. But then it occurred to me, well, even though there are some conditions that are keyed on date and they're kind of lame, 
why don't we add date again? So what I did is went to this, said edit header list and added date. And I'm going to do that right now because I want to tell you what comes up after that. Okay. So I hit date. Yep. All right. So now when you click on the list of conditions here, oh, you're going to see that on top of the screen date. Now, if you select that, you then get a list of five criteria. Contains, does not contain, begins with, ends with, ends with and is equal to. And then I thought about what he's trying to do. I'm like, well, how could you possibly look at the date header and determine if it's, you know, like he, he was suggesting and the, the, this inspired me, whether it's, you know, one part of the day or the other. Right. Now, this is the weird part, Dave, and that's, uh, that's why I think it's good we toss it around here. Now, at least my mail for my ISP has an AM or PM in the date field. Right. Well, now, uh, so what I'm going to, what I suggested though then we can bounce it back and forth. What I suggested to him is, well, why don't you key on that? I know it's not going to give you a 50. I mean, we're not going to assume that half of the people send in the AM and PM, but I think it's close enough. So that was my suggestion. Then okay. he got back to me and said, well, you know, that, that sounds like a, a, a good path to take, but um, my date header doesn't show AM or PM, but it does show the hour, minute, second. So I think what he's going to try to do, and now you can tell it's the hour because it's going to be, you know, two numbers and a colon. Right. So I think what he decided to do, and he's going to get back to us, but I think this is going to work is, you know, have either one rule that has all of these or, you know, create individual rules, but look for, you know, zero, zero, oh, one, oh, two, oh, three, and so on. So I think he can put them all in, in one rule field. So basically, anything that's in one part of the day, put that in one mailbox. Anything that's in the other part of the day, based on the hour, put it in the other one. Right. And and actually, if you wanted to split it up as it came in throughout the day, you could do, uh, you know, zero, 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 two, zero, four in one and then one, three, mm-hmm. five, seven, nine, eleven. Right. In the other. And that way, you know, you're you're uh, you're going back and forth every hour. It's it's routing. Yeah. What what criteria he used was space zero zero colon or space zero one colon because the you know the the minutes for the first 24 minutes of the hour of course that will also uh have a zero 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 one colon right Right. each one of those but not the space in front of it so that that's what he did yeah it was interesting he wrote back and he said that while he uh the date field from his isp shows am or pm uh, when he selects the date header in his mail rules, like you described, it autofills the content with the hever, header from the highlighted message. And in every case, it was auto converting it to 24 hour convention, which is very interesting. So, uh, you know, but whatever, whatever works. I mean, it as long as as long as it's, uh, you know, consistent with what works on your machine and, and you do sometimes you have to go into mail and go into the view menu, go to message mm-hmm. And say long headers uh, or even better uh, is view message and raw source so that you can really see what uh, what mail's going to be able to see in there. I mean, for mine, if I go look at and I'm curious about this, John, with you, you say that when you go and look at your your message, it shows up a.m. or p.m. Is that actually coming from your ISP if you look at view message raw source? Because I'd, I'd be surprised if your ISP was using AM or PM on their mail server and not just 24-hour time. Oh, I'm going I'm to tell you in, uh, in one moment here. So view. Yep. Raw source. Yes. All right, let's see. Date. Nope. Okay, so mail's converting it. All right. 
good point. So, so for example, I'm looking at one here, Mun, comma, space, 07, space, Mar, space, 2011, space, 19, colon, 59, colon, 55, and then space plus zero, 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 which is the, uh, time zone. Offset. Yeah. Time zone. So, yep. uh, okay. But, uh, all right. So, so, to, so setting the rule to one of the elements in the time. And as you pointed out, yeah, space precedes the hour. Yep. Um, should do it. So just split it. And then, then just assume I, I, you know, I, I think it's going to be the best you're going to get. The other thing could be, and you know, this gets beyond, I think what he could do on his end would be to configure the mail server to kind of, you know, maybe have two different email addresses or something like that. That's another way. If you have control of no, that, that, that's getting too complicated. Well, it, it is and it isn't, but you know, before we jump off this, I wanted to circle back to something you mentioned and that is, uh, there, there's a header called X with a, with a capital X dash Ben there with capital B and T. Uh, that header is created by Gmail when mail is being kind of rerouted through its system. And it, and John, I know you mentioned it and I had it on my list too. It's, it's the, it's a very valuable header to know about. If you're doing any filtering on Gmail, it can be, it can make, if something comes into you and you are BCC'd on the message, where your name is not listed in the two field filtering on that X dash Ben there header can allow you to see that. Yes, the message was sent to, you know, in your case, John at MacObserver.com or David Matt, whatever, you know, or even feedback at MacGeekab.com. In fact, that's how I have that filter built. So if Dave, you- did you say, feed- <laughs> Oh wait, it's not time for that. Yet. But, uh, but you bring up a good point because I had to do this because oddly enough, Dave, a lot of mail that I get at Mac observer, which is forwarded, has in the two field, and that's what I keyed on before, but for some bizarre reason, some people, I don't know if it's the email program they're using or whatever distribution system they use, yep. it would be their address in the two field, and so sure. my, my rule would miss it right. until I found exactly what you said, is that I looked in the long headers and I found this field. So uh, so I guess m- multiple programs put it in there as kind of a cookie crumb yeah. that you can use, and now my filter takes anything that's sent to my Mac observer address and puts it in my Mac observer folder. It makes me happy. Prior to Gmail, uh, X dash Ben there was not, uh, what I used. I had a, it, one was called delivered dash two, I think, but, uh, but you can take a look through the raw headers and just look for your email address, uh, kind of further up the list anywhere other than from, and you'll see the name of the header, but, uh, yeah, it gets interesting. So, you know, he asked, how would we skin this cat? And, and, and then sort of headed us down a path that he was thinking, which was this whole filtering by date. I have a better idea or a different idea anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, John, you said filtering on the mail server is far too complex. Well, it used to be, but, you know, I'll bring Gmail back into the picture. You have full control over the mail server with at least in that in that respect. You don't have full control. Well, I don't know. If he, I don't know if he has access sure. to his ISP's mail server. But he could forward all these messages to Gmail and then and then actually have Gmail do some filtering and and then forward them off differently depending on some criteria in them. So you could do it that way. The other way to do it would be to have them forward them to Gmail and leave them all there and simply use Gmail as kind of a poor man's support ticket repository in that mm-hmm. you leave the message in the inbox until you take it. So you can both log into Gmail, right? If you see a message, you can say, I'll, I'll take this one. And as soon as you do it, it's marked as unread. So the person that's, you know, working alongside you, even if they're not right alongside you, 
can see, oh, that one's unread. That's fine. Uh, and then when you're done, you archive the message off into, you know, all mail or whatever, and it gets it out of the inbox and you're good to go. And that way, you know, if you've got a couple hours now, you can go through the stuff and clean out the queue. And then maybe later the other person working on it with you can go through, you know, the queue and clean it out and keep up with it that way too. So that, that would be how I would do it. Um, and that way you're not futzing around with mail rules and making sure a certain Mac is on the line and, and all that to, uh, to handle it. So that's my, yeah. uh, that's my, favorite. okay, that's good. I, I like the mail rules though. And, and it helped me learn something about mail rules and that, uh, if anything, you can, you can add to the headers that the mail rules considers. Uh, yeah, I only recently found that out. So that's, I think a very powerful tool to build your own, uh, and you know, there may even be a mail, uh, mail plugin. We should, uh, you know, there are a few sites that have some mail plugin. There may be yeah. a mail plugin that deals with this as well. Yep. 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 There certainly could be. Uh, you know, in uh, in the last regular show, in show 317, we talked about or I talked about my uh, my trip down or out to San Francisco and the various different 3G, um, you know, and 4G mobile hotspots that I used. And we got a couple of questions uh, and Johnny's kind of brings us into the in, into the topic about that. He says, I just purchased a new 13 inch MacBook Air, uh, which he loves. And. He says, now that I have an iPad, an iPhone 4, along with the MacBook Air, would I still recommend the Verizon MiFi, or is there something else that would give him Wi-Fi access all the time? So let's talk about this, right? With the iPhone, there's a couple different options. Uh, and I'm going to rewind a little. You already have an iPhone, right? So both AT&T or Verizon now and AT&T, presumably as of Friday, because they've said that they're going to, uh, both have hotspot availability in the iPhone itself and they've matched pricing on it sort of right. It's 20 bucks a month for two gigs of hotspot data. And then if you go over that, it's 20 bucks for each additional gigabyte. That's the same for, for AT&T and Verizon. Now each of those requires a data plan and that's where the pricing gets a little bit different. Verizon, uh, I believe you have to have their 2999 unlimited data plan, which is the only one you can have for the iPhone. Right, John? Now, now do you know? Cause the thing is, yeah, I look, I do know. Oh, no, no, I know that. No, I know that. But 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 my question is, is that when I've gone to the Verizon page, there's ways that I can tweak my my plan. And I see a little checkbox. Now, if you can't do mobile hotspot without the data plan. Uh, Oh, no, no, I understand that. My question is, can I activate it and deactivate it on a month to month basis? And I haven't tried it because really, I I don't. hmm? The hotspot, you mean? Yes. Right now, if I yes. go to my plan page, I can check a box and OK, so I can activate it for one month and then say, OK, I don't want it for the next. Month. Correct. That's true of both AT&T and Verizon. Oh, that's right. OK, yes. so if I need it, if you need it, you can just kick it on. Right. So uh, All right, go on. Verizon Sorry. charges 30 bucks for the uh, unlimited data plan, which right now mm-hmm. is the only data plan you can get, I think, with the iPhone. Uh, yes. Okay. Well, there's that and there's a corporate one, but I don't right. think many people go for the corporate one. And then, yeah, then there's hotspot, which is an additional $20. Right. Uh, and then AT&T requires you to be on their data pro plan. Now, AT&T has three data plans for iPhone, iPhone users. They have an unlimited data plan that if you're on it, you can stay on it, but otherwise you can't get on it. Uh, and that's 30 bucks a month. They have a, uh, two gig per month plan called their data pro plan, which is 25 per month. And then they have a 250 megabyte plan, which is 15 a month. You have to be on their data pro plan, which is 25 bucks a month for two gigs of normal iPhone data. 
Uh, so, so that's, that's your options with your iPhone itself, depending on how often you're going to be using either your MacBook air or your iPad with Wi-Fi. you know, one of those might work okay for you. Uh, of course, if you're willing, uh, you could jailbreak your, your iPhone and turn it into a hotspot with the MyY app. The app is 10 bucks. I think it might, I heard rumor it was going up to 20, uh, and it works really well, but that uses your normal data plan. Uh, and of course, whether that's approved by your carrier or not is, you know, that, that's up to you and your carrier to, uh, to decide. Uh, outside of that, there are, you know, my are offered by Verizon, AT&T, uh, Virgin, which is Sprint Mobile or Sprint prepaid. I'm sorry. Uh, and, and the latter is, is definitely the, uh, the cheapest it's, it's, um, Let's see, 10 bucks for 10 days and 100 megs of data, 50 bucks for unlimited data for a month. Uh, and they say that if you go over two and a half gigs in any one month, they may begin limiting your throughput, but you'll still have access to the data, which is kind of a nice little middle ground. So that's Virgin Mobile, which is also Sprint prepaid. Uh, AT&T's MiFi pricing is 35 bucks for three gigs, 10 bucks for each gig over that. Verizon's MiFi pricing is the same, 35 bucks for three gigs, 50 for five gigs, 80 for 10 big gigs, and it's still the same 10 bucks uh, over that. And MiFi's run about 150 bucks. And of course, lastly, you could go and buy that LG Optimus 5 phone on Virgin Mobile and pay 150 bucks for the phone and then 25 bucks a month for unlimited data, which is the, your cheapest way of getting unlimited mobile hotspot data. But uh, so there's lots of options. Um and, and, you know, I would, I would go with the Optimus five uh, or Optimus five. I'm seeing Optimus V and reading it as a Roman numeral. It's not, it's V for Virgin. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, I would, I would do that um, as a first step, as long as where you're going to be is covered by Virgin slash sprints uh, 3g network. And, and they probably have the worst or, or least coverage of every, uh, every vendor. Um, it works well when you're in coverage. They just aren't, you know, widespread through, uh, through lots of different areas. So, uh, but that, that would be the first thing to check. Yeah. Um, that's, that's my feeling on it. Hopefully that answers everybody's questions. We've got lots of email kind of along those same lines. So. Do you have any questions, Sean? <clears throat> about this? Yeah. <laughs> about this. No, I found a okay, good. Well, you know, I found a little app here. I don't know if you've used this. It's called Data Man. Okay. It's a little iPhone app. It shows both your cellular and your Wi-Fi data usage. There's a, That's cool. a free version, which I have my iFi right now, uh, uh, iPhone the, yep. right now. Um, and then I think also the, the uh, and I assume all the carriers do this, but at least Verizon now, the, the, the Verizon app that you can put on the iPhone yep. shows what I can see is a pretty accurate uh, summary of how much... 3g data i've used during the the billing period so so i don't need this app well well i like this app because it shows both my wi-fi and my cellular uh data consumption because at one point i was like you know should i have wi-fi should i have wi-fi on along with 3g and and as far as i can tell the answer is pretty much yes absolutely yeah Uh, there's no reason not to so if wi-fi is not available it's not available but for for a while there i turned off 3g and yeah, that's something you don't want to do because then that prevents the phone from getting things like alerts that you got a uh, voicemail, <laughs> right? <laughs> as I found. <laughs> so that's a pretty cool app. So Data Man, there's a free version. There's also the, the paid version is only two bucks. Um, and it will not only monitor, I'm assuming you have to put in your 
your username and password for Verizon or AT&T. Is that right to make it work or no? Does it um, get it out of the phone? No, I think it just somehow secret. I don't recall having to give it that. You, you give it your okay. billing date and you give it a date allowance and then yeah. it, uh, it'll start yelling at you if you uh, approach your, uh, which I don't think your uh, provider will do because they want to nail you with the uh, overage fee, right? Right, right. So does the free, well, you can get text messages. AT&T will, will, ha- will send you messages, free text messages if you're approaching limits for sure. Yeah, here, I, I don't recall having to enter okay. anything. I, yeah. I think it's just somehow monitor. There must be an API in the phone yeah. where yeah. it just knows how much data is used for, for things. So yeah, are, so you give it your you, billing date and your data allowance and then it'll warn you at certain thresholds. Are you able, are the, do those warnings come in as like push notifications if, uh, or, or is that only in the uh, paid version? I haven't gotten any yet. Okay. Oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I'm glad we talked about this. So, That's yeah, good. so it's a, it's a, it's a good app that'll do more than, uh, cause I assume again, your provider is not going to warn you when you, when you approach your cap, it'd be nice if they did, but I don't think right. they generally do. Right. I don't think it's, it works to their advantage to do that. <laughs> uh, I, I think they have to though. I think they have to offer oh, do they? a facility. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it looks like they've got another one called voice man that does uh, something similar. So, but I don't, I haven't heard anything about that. So. All right. Um, let's go to Tim, shall we, John? Oh, this was a can of worms. Yeah. Okay. Hello, this is Tim from Danbury, Connecticut. I have a quick question regarding shortcuts in the browser windows, you know, the column view in the finder where you can place things in the sidebar to get to them. I'd like to place folders there of current projects I'm working on. And I've started storing my current projects on secure disk images. When I eject the secure disk image, all my shortcuts disappear. And I've noticed the same behavior for any external USB hard drives. If I place a shortcut to a folder on an external drive, then eject the drive, all the shortcuts disappear. And when I remount the drive, the shortcuts do not reappear. Is there any way to make a hard link to one of these instead of a link to the file ID so they don't disappear. I don't mind if they don't work when the volume is not accessible, but it's really annoying to have to reset all my bookmarks when I start a session of programming. Thank you for your help. This is where you cut me off. Awesome. So, yeah, we both kind of went through this and uh, and came up with, you know, a couple of things. The, the simple answer is, yeah, you're right. All that stuff disappears uh and when you eject a USB, any local volume, a USB or a disk image or anything, strangely enough, they do not disappear when you make them from network volumes, uh, which is how I've got everything set up here. So when I heard this, I thought, well, that's sort of odd. But uh, but they definitely disappear with local volumes and they don't reappear, obviously, as Tim said. The, the short answer is uh, I think the best thing to do would be to create a folder on your local hard drive on your boot drive, maybe somewhere in documents or, or on your desktop if you care, but, uh, and then inside that folder, put aliases to all the folders and projects that you want to work on. Uh, then take that main folder and drag it into your, uh, sidebar that will persist. It, it, it's one level deeper, right? The uh, one level detached, but at least that folder sticks around and then you can click there and, and you've got shortcut access to all of those uh all those directories that way and i think i mean that's it we we it was a very exhaustive process for us to uh to kind of rule out everything else we we couldn't find any other way 
of forcing that list to populate. And, uh, but if one of you knows, let us know. You got, is there anything to, to add here, John? It's a mess. Well, it's not I, really I was just very, no, I, well, no, I was very disappointed in, in the lack of what I thought should work, not working. Yep. You know, like being able to put a shortcut in certain places in the, in the finder and it just wouldn't let you. Right. So, uh, so you, you, yeah, so you did a, yeah, and you, you held my hand and walked me through how, how the, the very specific way you can do this in order to get it to, to work, uh, reliably. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's an interesting one for sure. It, any, anything to add or are we, uh, we good to move on to Santa, I think. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just got a chuckle. Okay. So Santa says he was listening to last Monday's Mac Geek Gab and he says, Here's a problem similar to the hot corners problem you two were talking about in aperture when working in full screen mode, moving the pointer to the bottom of the image pops up a film strip of the image files. This would probably be considered a feature, except when the mouse pointer is a retouch brush and you need to work on the bottom of an image up pops that film strip covering what you need to see. And the only way to get back is to move the mouse, which is now an active brush out of the way to whatever correction uh, is active. Yikes. That's hard to explain. Do you have a way to turn off the pop up? John, you're our aperture dude. I am becoming an aperture dude day well, by go. day. That's great. And so I, I came across with a little Google foo. I came across a solution to this. So number one, I, I don't typically work in full screen mode. Though it's a very nice feature that lets you, you know, get maximum image size. Um, and typically they put a toolbar across the top of the screen that, you know, is the various tools you can invoke, but yeah, I verified this. So, so as your, as your cursor creeps towards the bottom of the screen, they put what's called a film strip that, that shows the photos that are in the project or the album or whatever you're working on. And I'm like, well, that's kind of neat. And yeah, Santa pointed out, well, it's kind of a pain in the neck if you happen to want to edit <laughs> that part of the photo and right. it's where the film strip is. And so the quick answer is no, as far as I can tell, there is no way to get rid of it. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Well, it's good news. And, and this was, to me was not intuitive at all. You know, you know, so I tried clicking on it, right clicking every, every, and nothing, nothing worked. Then I found out again, using a, doing a little research, you can grab it and put it somewhere else. Oh, so you can drag it to the left side of the screen, the right side of the screen, or I guess even the top of the screen. Right. So while you can't get rid of it, you can get it the heck out of the way. So you can do your work on the part of the image when, when you're using a touch up or another tool that's specific to that portion of the screen when you're running in full screen mode. So, uh, but again, I, I, I looked through the preference, I dug through the preferences and, and could not find a way to disable that functionality. So, uh, so I think it's kind of a screw up. In, in that they do that and, and you can't disable it, but you can move it and you can also, there's a little slider. You can actually lock that toolbar, which may be another thing, depending on. I, I was just going to ask, could you just force it to stay open and then, and then the picture wouldn't be there. So yeah. it, uh, from what I saw, yeah, you can, uh, there's a little slider and if you slide it, it's kind of like a pin in, in a lot of other programs. Okay. It'll lock it to that part of the screen. And then I think it'll scale the image, right? which, uh, yeah, may not be appropriate because, you know, you get relatively less resolution. Right. Um, right. And that it's not quite full screen, but that that's another way to do it. So that's that's the answer. That's your story. All right. I dragged it, moved it, and uh, and, and it moved uh, where I wanted to put it. So so that that that's going it, to... It's a little extra work, but it'll solve this problem. All right. While we're on the uh, 
topic of Aperture, uh, Leslie wrote in. He says, hi, John and Dave. I sync photos to my iPhone from iPhoto. If I were to buy Aperture, would I be able to sync photos from that program as well? Uh, And then, uh, yeah. So go ahead, John, go. Well, I want to be clear. I want to make a distinction here first, because this has come up and especially using the, the different programs here. Yeah. Well, I want to be clear that sync occurs ah. within iTunes. That's right. We talked about this last time. In fact, with, with photos, sync is even the wrong term, even though that's what iTunes uses, right? It's there is import, which happens into iPhoto and sync, which happens out to the phone from iTunes, right? So it's, it's import right. is from phone to computer and then sync, which is again, a misnomer is from computer to phone via iTunes. Uh, at least that's the, that's where the terminology is. So, yeah, so that's right. So I think he's right. talking about, uh, importing photos from aperture. That would, that would be right. Uh, although he probably also wants to sync photos from aperture well, back I'm, out. I'm, I'm going to cover all of it. Okay, good. Go. So the thing is you can do either. So, so the good news is that I photo and aperture both see the iPhone as an import photo source. Great. So in that case, the answer is yes. Now, now you may have to go in aperture. There's preferences and that there's a place where you can, I don't have the specifics in front of me, but there's a place where you can define what happens during import operations. And one is, um, or I think it just shows up. If you plug in the iPhone, it should just show up in aperture as a source of photos when, you know, you, when you, that you've taken with the camera application. So in that case, the answer is yes. But, but I also want to go into, because I think it may be, maybe a hidden question or maybe not, yep. but iTunes, and this is very interesting. So iTunes gives you a number of options for syncing photos with your iPhone or right. I think any iDevice and, and, and they're as follows. So you can sync with a folder on your Mac. And when you select a folder, it can, as an option, let you choose subfolders, So you don't have to sync your entire. Sure. And you probably have all your pictures in your pictures folder. So you can sync subfolders, you know, give you some granularity. Here's the neat part, though. You can also synchronize folders with either iPhoto or Aperture. Now, if you sync with iPhoto, you can choose, and, and the, there's subtle differences here because the programs have different capabilities, as we've discussed. You can sync with albums, with events, and here's the cool part that I never realized, faces. Oh, cool. Yeah. Because, of course, both iPhoto and Aperture have the ability, to, if you train it, to recognize certain faces. Now, with Aperture, it's slightly different. If you're syncing with iTunes, you can choose projects or albums, which are two different ways of organizing your work within Aperture or Faces as well. Oh, cool. And of course, the other application that, that always talks to any photo device, whether it be a camera or at least a, a camera that's tethered via cable, is uh, image capture. It is another way you can pull photos off of your, your iDevice. So I think that covers... Or USB camera, or even a scanner. Sure. Uh, image capture is a little different. It sees, well, you know, now I think about it, I think maybe iPhoto or Aperture may be able to see scanners. Or maybe not. Um, I think they can. They might be able to. I, I don't know about iPhoto. It wouldn't surprise me if Aperture did. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we've covered all the different options of either importing or syncing photos with the iPhone. Good. All right. Uh, let's see. Moving on to Joe. Joe has an interesting question. He writes, 
I have a time capsule with two external USB drives plugged in via a USB hub. They contain movies which I play through iTunes to Apple TV. I usually always eject volumes before I switch them off. But how do I do this with the time capsule? It does not have an off switch. Am I supposed to leave it on all the time? That's what I'm doing now because I fear switching it off and on daily may eventually cause problems with it and or the USB drives. This is an interesting thing, John. Uh, yeah, what do you what do you think? Well, you know, the time capsule is not built. It does not have an on-off switch for the same reason that my Linksys wireless router doesn't have an on-off switch, and pretty much any other. And a cable modem doesn't have an on-off switch, although some have those standby switches, which I've always sort of well, it could be because they're about. being cheap. I don't think so. See, I think these are <laughs> they, they are being cheap. Of course, they're going to make it as as inexpensively as possible. I mean, hey, yeah, that's probably five cents, five or ten cents for for a power switch button or switch, yeah, and and then the you know the wiring and all that stuff. Sure, but uh, <laughs> but really, it's because I, I believe this device's prime primary functionality is is well twofold. It's that of a router, right? It can be your your gateway to the internet, uh, and it can also be your uh, time machine destination, network accessible storage, right? And for those two purposes, you would presumably want the device on all the time. Now, that's pr- that's likely why it doesn't have an on-off switch. It also is likely why it wasn't really designed with the idea of someone turning it on and off and probably not tested uh, for that. So... Yes, you could turn it off. I mean, you could just treat it like a, you know, a USB drive and and a hub with other USB drives. But I I would I worry because when you turn the time ca- or when you power the time capsule up, it takes a couple of minutes. You hear the, the hard drive mm-hmm. in there spin up and and clearly something happens. I, I don't know. I would I would leave it on. Uh, you could turn off the wireless circuit in it if you don't want to use it wirelessly. And that would save some power. And then, of course, it can spin down its hard drives as well as the hard drives of the uh, the that are connected to it USB. And otherwise, I'd I'd leave the time capsule itself on. I'd I'd worry about turning it on and off every day simply because it's not built to have that done. Hmm. My thoughts on this day? Yeah, go. <laughs> well, it was in my response. To this. So number one, it sounds like he Joe may not be even be using this. As a router, it sounds yeah, like he, I don't think he is. Yeah. It sounds like he's just using it as I, I would think a time capsule, but also a way to allow wireless access to USB drives plugged into it, or network access to USB or network drives. access. Right, could be. Um, now it brings up the question, and I think this is a uh, you know long running battle in in many quarters. As you said, I mean I. I'm going to say I'm with you. I'm, I'm, right. I'm not going to violently disagree with you, but <laughs> I don't know if. I mean, obviously, because it doesn't have a power switch, it, it was not designed right. to be powered on and off, though, of course. Uh, so my suggestion and, you know, let me know your thoughts on this is that I, I don't. My gut kind of tells me that turning it on and off and on and off and on and off could stress things out. On the other hand. I mean, lots of other devices handle that constantly. So unless yeah. they put, you know, a, a really substandard power supply in here or hard drive, I wouldn't. So, I'm, 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 not, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, questioning yeah, whether I, power cycling any device can shorten its life. Well, yeah, I think that's your your, uh, you know, fundamentally religious battle. Right. But yes. Um, yes. But 
yeah, I wouldn't so much worry about the the drive in there, right? I mean, that's going to be powered up and down all the time. But yeah, the power supply, it I mean, it it, it it's not it's not it, it could be fine with it, but it's not built or tested for it necessarily. And, and neither are any of the other components in there, right? Um so I don't yeah, I don't know, you know. I don't know that it's good to turn the wireless functionality, the wireless circuit on and off all the time. I, I, I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe I, it's I think fine. I'm with you on that. I mean, the only suggestion I had is he, he may want to consider a power strip for both the drives and the device itself to just synchronize or make it a little easier yep. to power all of them on and off. But, um, but you know, my, my time capsule, because it's my router, um, you know, I don't have, I actually have a printer plugged into it. And that's the other thing because I have a wire, uh, right, right. my, uh, my inkjet plugged into it. I pretty much want that available whenever I want. So, you know, I've been running mine. I mean, you and I both, I think have the same model. I mean, mine's been on for, you know, two years, I think. Yeah. Right. <laughs> for the right. most part, unless I have to, you know, some bad happens, but it, it, it's been on constantly. And I think it's, it's designed to be used that way. So that's how I would suggest to use it. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on to Lisa. She says, hi, guys. I have some old Apple Works files that worked at first when I installed Snow Leopard. But now a message comes up asking me if I want to install Rosetta. Uh, Wikipedia says that Rosetta is fine for Snow Leopard, but toast once Lion comes out. Do you have an opinion as to whether it is worth it to install this software or just to bag all the apps that require it? OK, so. uh John, I'll let you take the answer, but but just to clarify what she's talking about here, Rosetta is the translator built into uh, Leopard and Snow Leopard that allows you to run PowerPC code on your Intel Mac. Uh, and I think it was, it, it may have even been there in Tiger, right? In 10.4. But, uh, but certainly pre-Snow Leopard, it was enabled by default when you installed the OS, and now it's not. Uh, but, but, uh, but as rumors have it, yeah, once lion comes out, I don't think lion will be included in Rosetta, at least not according to Wikipedia here. Uh, and so once lion comes out, Rosetta will simply be remembered as, uh, when someone misremembers that old song from Toto, right? Mm -hmm. Is that right, John? Oh, never mind. Uh, go ahead. So you've got, you've got I'm, some, I'm not the musician here. I know. Well, I got, well, I'm going to answer some questions that have not yet been asked, but I'm going to answer them anyway. So how do you know what applications on your machine would potentially take advantage of Rosetta? And I'm going to tell you probably the quickest way. Well, there's a couple of ways. So one is you can run system profiler and then you're going to see a software category and then you're going to see applications. This is where I would look. And if you look in applications, you're going to see a column called kind. And what are you going to see here? You're going to see a number of different things. And I'm looking at mine right now on my mini. I see Intel, which is optimal. I see universal. And what universal means is that the application has both Intel and PowerPC code in it. And of course, the OS is smart enough to run the Intel code. I see some things that are PowerPC. And those are the applications that are going to be taking advantage of Rosetta. You want to make every effort, and I have. Now, these are a cruft, actually, I think, left over from apps I, I don't even use anymore. But the thing is, I made an effort when, when I went from the G5 to the Mini that before I did that, I looked at all the applications on the G5, which, of course, was PowerPC, 
and made sure that I replaced them with universal applications so I wouldn't have to use Rosetta. Now, you know, you're saying, well, Rosetta's there. It does what it does. What, what's the downside? Well, the downside is that there is a performance hit you take running Rosetta. It, it's very clever. I mean, it's transparent. You typically, unless, you know, as, as was pointed out, <laughs> the, the, you know, OS comes up and says, huh, what's this? Do you want me to install Rosetta? You don't even really know it's running. Um, and then the fourth category, of course, you'll see what you shouldn't see. And if you see it, it's not going to run, of course, is classic, which is like, you know, old school OS 9 stuff. Um, so my opinion here is, um, well, well, she got back to us, um, basically said, uh, well, I think there were AppleWorks files. And I guess the yeah. AppleWorks app is, you know, dead. Power PC dead, only. Right. Is gone and will not be updated. Um uh, so a suggestion in general is to maybe comb through your apps and just make sure. Well, well I think the decision, I think she said, you know what? Forget it. I, I'm not even going to install it because I, I don't want to you know, have to. Uh, I want to be ready for for Lion and I don't want to take, uh, you know, take the risk. And I guess the AppleWorks files can be run uh, again. The, the feedback we got, they can be imported into other applications that don't need to use Rosetta. So, uh, so Rosetta was, uh, you know, kind of a crutch to help people make the transition, but especially in light of the fact that as far as we know, Lion will not support it. Everybody should be purging those PowerPC apps from their list of applications um, if you want the new hotness of Lion. Yeah, I don't know if, if uh, Zamzar, uh, remember that Zamzar is an online file conversion uh utility and it's really handy if you don't have the software on your machine to convert files from like you know old word perfect or whatever to word uh you can upload a file you go to zamzar.com you upload the file you put in what you want to convert it to and you put your email address in of course you know if it's something uber confidential uh, you know chances are not, a human will never see this but you are sending it in the clear up to uh you know some other website but uh, zamzar might convert appleworks files i don't know uh, I'm, I'm trying to dig here while you were talking and <clears throat> well, I think Lisa was saying that pages or other apps, especially yeah. Apple apps yeah, for the most true. part could, yeah. could parse these, uh, yep. these files or import them. And, you know, so you don't have to create them from scratch. So, right, uh, right. so, so I think she's in good shape and I think she decided, yeah, I'm, I'm not even going to install Rosetta. <laughs> yeah. um, well, the answer was that the reason the message came up is that I recall this, Rosetta is by default not installed with Snow Leopard. I guess that was the question. Correct. On a new machine. But it so will you, offer to install yes. it for you like she's talking about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think when I installed Snow Leopard uh, on my MacBook. So if you go to the. Uh, so there's usually in most installers a customize option. So there's yeah. a default install and a custom install. So on Snow Leopard, if you went to the, at some point, I think, yeah, it was a customize button. There would be a checkbox where you could check and say, yeah, by the way, can you install Rosetta while you're installing everything else? And it would do it at that point in time rather than prompting you, which I think the prompting is a good thing because it, it's kind of a warning saying, yeah, I got to do something extra. Do you really want to do this? Right, right. Again, I don't think there's a downside to running Rosetta other than a performance hit, but but yeah, you want to prepare for the uh, for the future. Yep. All right, uh, I want to talk about our next sponsor, John, which is Smile Software or Smile as they are called at SmileSoftware.com with PDF Pen and PDF Pen Pro. The general concept behind PDF Pen is it is an app that allows you to open and manipulate with a focus on the latter. PDF files. You can uh, paste in graphics. I, I've talked about this before where I grab 
uh, a signature that I have written, right? Cause we don't have lion yet and all those cool new features people are talking about. But, uh, but I, I take a signature that I scanned in and, uh, and then I'm able to paste that right on top of a PDF contract, place it exactly where I want, go and grab the text tool, put the date in next to it. And then I can save that at back out as a PDF and send it back to, uh, to the person who needed my document with, or my signature on a document. You can also edit a PDF pen, edit text in a PDF with PDF pen. It's actually really cool. As long as it's PDF text, you can highlight it. And then the little edit text button comes up. So if you, uh, you know, if, uh, if somebody sends you a PDF to edit, uh, you know, and says, uh, if you find any spelling errors, let me know. You can actually do that there. Uh, you can uh, change any anything you want, uh, which could include maybe even, you know, maybe you don't like your gate uh, at the uh, boarding area. So you change it before you print your boarding pass. I don't know if that'd be between you and the FDA. <laughs> but, uh, but you certainly could uh, do that because it allows you to edit all sorts of stuff. If you scan a document, it includes OCR, optical character recognition software, right inside PDF pen, and you can convert that to text. And then, of course, with that feature I just talked about, you can edit the text. Very, very cool. Uh, that's PDF pen. PDF pen pro ha- adds a couple other features, including the ability to convert websites to PDFs, create PDF forms like you've seen. You can do those in PDF pen pro. They work on Windows or the Mac. Uh, and you can even create and edit a table of contents in PDF Pen Pro. So both are available at smilesoftware.com for download. PDF Pen is $59.95 when you are ready to purchase. And PDF Pen Pro is $99.95. But again, you can go get a free trial of both of them. Check them out. See which one is the right one for you. And then uh, download it. All available at smilesoftware.com. And with that, John... I think it's time to head over to the Mac Geek Gab forums where there were a couple of good questions uh, recently. Mac Geek Gab forums, of course, at MacObserver.com in the forum section. And man, it's gotten to be a great community out there. You folks are awesome. Not only are there people coming through and asking questions, but it's not just me answering questions anymore. We've got a whole slew of you out there helping out and answering questions. John, we would love to see you there. Uh, there's some great stuff happening and, uh, and I'm going to put it on my calendar and stop by. All right, good. And, uh, and, and so, uh, we have two questions that came up in the forums that I, I thought would be good to share with all the listeners here in the show. So, uh, the first comes from uh, listener and forum member SKP. SKP writes, originally, I thought my MacBook Pro was having disk drive issues. However, if I insert disk one of Mac OS X while logged in, it reads the disk just fine. And then I can start the rebuild of uh, Mac OS X from there Un- up until it tells me to restart. After rebooting, the disk spins for a minute and then it just hangs at the white screen. The same thing happens when I attempt to reboot with the disk in the drive holding the C key down. Also happens when I try to use an external disk drive. So I'm ruling out the drive at this point. Any no, anyone have any suggestions as to what else I can try? I just want to start over and rebuild my MacBook Pro. Okay. Uh, there's a couple things that can keep the, the system from being able to boot to uh, the optical drive. One of them is, is the SMC and even the PRAM. So command option PR on reboot to reset the uh, PRAM. Resetting the SMC is a little more involved. We'll put an article in the show notes. Uh, Depends on your exact Mac model. 
But my gut says it's not uh, it's not that complicated. I think you just have a bad disc and the disc might be readable when you uh, just mount it. But the boot sectors or whatever might have gotten scratched. And I, I, I think that's what's going on. John, you got any thoughts? <clears throat> yes, I do. Good. Oh, about this. Yes. <laughs> well, maybe a long shot, but you know, I, I have run into recently and have helped out um, some folks on tw- folks on Twitter yep. with problems with their CD drive. And in one case, it was actually someone who had a problem, which I also had with a dual layer disc, not burning. Okay. That's a slightly different problem, but the solution, Dave. So, you know, at first, yes, the, 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 the process here eliminated, I think, though I'm not positive here, but I'm going to suggest something to do anyways. Get a lens cleaner. I'm thinking no. if, if the drives are in the same environment and maybe it's dusty yeah. or dirty or dander or pets or whatever, you know, creatures you have in your environment, you, you may have the, the, the drives may have collected. And, and it was funny because one of the folks that follows me actually had a problem with a dual layer disc and I suggested it to him and. I was shocked that it worked because it worked. Well, it worked for me, but I tossed out the advice, not thinking that uh, I thought I just had a unique situation here. Yeah. But he said, Oh my gosh, John, I went to the you know local store and I bought a lens cleaner and now I can burn my dual layer discs. So uh, another thought could be, you know, substandard media is always an issue here. Yeah, but it's not, I mean, we're not, he's not talking about burning, you know, but uh, so you're the lens cleaner or degradation, just depending on the discs, any lens cleaner, John, uh, I mean, I have one from years ago, but I think they all operate in a, a yeah. similar fashion. And okay. that I think the assumption is that the lens parks itself at the, uh, you know, innermost, you know, close to the, uh, yeah. to the inside. And I think that's where most of these uh, cleaners have the, the brushes. So, and, and know, it was okay hurt. to use a lens cleaner. Well, that, that was my next question is it's okay to use a lens cleaner on a slot loading drive. Well, as long as the lens cleaning disc is a full size. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but, you know, they sometimes have that little brush that kind of pokes down and that that's okay. in your slot loader that, uh, that worked for you. It, it worked for me and it worked okay. for the other person who I think, I think was on a, a mini, which also has a slot load. So my experience has been the, the, the lens cleaner is always something to try if you're having problems, you know, it, in my case it was writing, but you know, it could also be reading. Yep. I think it's a long shot, though. I, 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 I think it's something else. But I, um, I, you know, with a damaged disc, the other option would be that, uh, and and I do this a lot. I've talked about this with DVDs because you know, for a long time from Netflix, we were getting DVDs that were scratched to the point where our DVD player would not play them. But wow, I, I could rip them, you know, using Handbrake or whatever on my Mac, and and then just play the file back to the to the TV or reburn it or what have you. And the same concept could apply here. Is Go and use disk utility to make an image of that DVD and then reburn that DVD that back out to, you know, a a writable DVD. That might be enough. You know, it might be the kind of thing where it's damaged enough that, the you know, during the boot process, the timing or whatever it, you know, it's it's slowing down too much and it can't read the, the disk. But if all you're doing is creating an image, you might be able you might get past that. You know, you might just be able to uh, to to make that work. So that, that would be my rec- recommendation. And if not, you know, find a buddy who has the exact, the exact same disc and, and copy it. You know, you're, you're licensed. I think, uh, I think, I think your attorney the, could, uh, could fight that for you if you had to. Yeah. The only other thing I'll mention is cleaning discs. So of course yeah. that's another thing because yeah, I mean, sometimes yeah. even, even Redbox, Dave, I'll get discs where 
what do people do? What do they hand them to their kids to, you know, as pacifiers or what? I mean, I've, I've seen some, some stuff on I don't want to know what it is, but um, usually people are pretty good. But uh, the, the one tip is that based on the way that they do error correction. So one thing is that any optical media typically uses something called Reed Solomon error correction. And then what they do is they put additional data on the disc. So if a little part of it gets damaged, mm. there's enough extra data. Uh, you could say it's wasteful to, to recompose it and you won't get a skipper or anything like that. Huh. The only problem is that works if you clean the disc and you clean it from the inside out. The thing is, that data is arranged in a circular pattern. So here's a tip. If you're going to clean a disc, do not clean it in a circular motion. Because the problem is, if you inadvertently create a circular scratch, you're going to make matters a lot worse. Is and you're that gonna, why they tell us to, to clean discs that I didn't? Because I figured the chances of is, me making a circular scratch that is are, the same, exactly why. are the same as me making a you know a strat, scratch across the disc. Why, why would it matter? I don't want to do it at all. Oh. That is exactly why. So if you, if you clean it, if you clean it in a, in, in, if you clean it from the center out, if you do create a scratch, it'll be a scratch across the error correction data. So if I'm again, if you do it, I won't create a scratch. It doesn't matter which way I clean my disc. And I realize that there's a caveat there that, you know, no, you can't ever be that certain, but right. Uh, Yeah. So that's the other thing. And actually, you know, you may want to take the discs in question. I mean, uh, my local video store has what, what appears to be a professional, disc cleaning machine really? i mean that's the other thing well actually oh, i see them running it i mean it's kind of fun i mean whenever i go it's a, it's a, it's a small local shop Smart. that I, I love going to and they're constantly running this thing and it's uh yeah i mean i guess it puts some sort of a, i don't know exactly what it is i'll have to look at what the what the brand is but every time they get a disc back in order to avoid people coming back and screaming at them saying they're selling defective discs uh, because they also sell them after the fact they they will i think by practice they will always clean the discs before they they put them back in circulation because Again, I don't know what people are doing with these things other than putting them in their player and watching them (laughs) 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 or putting them in the case, which is the only thing you should be doing with that disc. I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. 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 Uh, All right. One more from the uh, from the forums. Let me see if I can coalesce this all together. Uh, One of our listeners, one of our visitors to the forums was having a problem where his the sound on his Mac pro would not stay uh, assigned to the right device. He would change it from the internal speakers to something else. And when he would reboot, boom, it would come back. And that was that he wanted to keep it persistent. And apparently there is a problem uh, with Mac pros running snow leopard. And there's an article here uh, in the, in the, uh, intruder actually in our forums said go to the hard drive open the library folder open the preferences folder and open the audio folder and there are two files to delete com.apple.audio.devicesettings.plist and com.apple.audio.systemsettings.plist then reopen uh, system preferences go to sound and set them the way you want close the sound preferences and restart and typically that works so for those of you with Mac pros that are having issues with snow leopard, getting it to keep the uh, sound where it should be. That's the, uh, that's hopefully the answer for you. Any thoughts on that, John? I hope so. All right, good. 
And the other thing could be, uh, well, you and I both, both experienced this, this, uh, a little tangent, but, uh, I remember a point where I had a little problem with my sound output. Oh, my MacBook pro. I think yeah. you did too. At one yeah, point I did. Well, yeah. what happened is all of a sudden I got no sound and I was like, well, what, what, what the heck is wrong? And then I happened to uh, notice, I think it was in a hotel. We were, we were at an event Yep. and I looked on the side of the machine and I saw a red light. I'm like, Hmm, that's kind of weird. Yeah. Apparently on, on the port or any machine, I think almost every Mac has a dual, you know, analog digital sound output port. That's right. And, um, and yeah, I guess it got stuck and the solution was <laughs> very low tech. <laughs> it was jam a toothpick in there and, uh, and ungum whatever got gummed. And then all of a sudden it said, Oh, okay. You're not up, op- but, but it got stuck in the optical mode. Yeah, and, we, uh, I was scratching my head for the longest time saying, why do, why did my computer all of a sudden not make any noise? And then when I looked in the sound control uh, system preference, it said optical and I'm like, uh, yeah, it's not dig- right. digital out. So yeah. So here's what happens folks is, is your headphone jack, the outer part of it is built for an analog signal that you plug in and you know, it, it sends sound to it all the way in though. There is a little light and it's red. Like John said, when you put the appropriate adapter in there, it triggers that little switch to turn that light on. And of course, John, uh, you have the, or you had a MacBook pro with that was, that was kicked. I've actually got one. The, in fact, the MacBook pro that Lisa is using now is permanently in that mode. And I had tried all kinds of different things and had not been able to, uh, to get it fixed. In fact, I was just working on it yesterday. One of our listeners uh, to the premium show had sent in an email where he had found or, or one of his friends had found an article saying put a little, a tiny bit of WD-40 in there and then slide either a toothpick or even just regular headphones in and out to kind of work that in oh. and, and, and free that up. And I put I put probably more WD-40 than I should have in there yesterday but it's uh, well no i mean i kept i kept putting more in i would yeah. actually i put it on the end of a, a toothpick or a pin you know and just kind of drip it into the slot was the uh the safest okay. way i could figure no, to get it now in i remember what worked for me so i read okay. articles that suggested a toothpick yep but here was another suggestion and fortunately in most hotels they give you not only stationary but pens yes um i pulled i think it was a big pen and okay. i basically pulled the pen out of the tube that it was in and the innards of the really? pen was just the right size. Well, it was long enough. The yeah, thing is it was long right, enough to right. stuff into the hole. Ah. And so I just stuffed it in there, you know, of course, of course, uh, you know, not point end, but the other end. And that was the size where it was small enough. The diameter was small enough where I could poke it in there. And then, yeah, somehow it nudged the switch that ah. then put it back into analog mode and, uh, and life was. Yeah. Good. I have but, been uh, able to yesterday. I wasn't able to, but in the past with hers, I was able to with a, um, I, I did it with a, uh, a paperclip, which I'm sure is, you know, Ooh. not advised, but it's fine. A metal uh, paper. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. But, uh, well, I figure you're putting <laughs> all kinds of metal in there with, with speakers and yeah, headphones right. and all that. Right. But, yeah. uh, but I was able to get in there and, and, and jiggle it around and I found where the switch is and I was able to get it to stay in analog mode, but only while I held it in there. But I, I couldn't even get it to do that yesterday, which was somewhat frustrating. Mm. But, uh, but anyway, it's, uh, it's, you know, <laughs> It's just those fun things that uh, that keep us doing what we do here because we love it so much. But unfortunately, the time has come. The walrus said, For "Talk what? of many things: cabbages and ceiling wax, cabbages and cakes." Um. Anyway, 
Uh, let's see. Next week, fainting in coils. No. Uh, next week, what? I'm going to be at South by Southwest, but I'm thinking we can do a show while I'm there, assuming one of my many uh, internet connection options works. So it would either be the hotel. You have more than anyone I know. So I know. I, I certainly hope so. <laughs> you would think we'd be able to make this work. I mean, but, I'm looking right now. Skype. I mean, look, I'm, I'm looking at uh, iStat menus, which is yeah. one of my favorites. And uh, I'm doing about 7K up and down. So uh, you shouldn't need a heck of a lot of bandwidth, Dave. No, my, my concern is we have about, right now we've got about a 30 millisecond round trip time. Oh. And over those wireless solutions, it's usually about 200 yeah. or, you know, somewhere between 150 and 250. So, uh, so we'll have to see, but, uh, but I'm thinking we should do a show next week and I'm thinking it should be cool stuff found because, well, regardless of whether we do it next week or not, the next show that we do is cool stuff found because we have the list. John is ridiculous. Uh, it's not just you and I, way too long. You and I have found a couple of cool things, but yeah, not, not just, it's not us. It's a tip of the hat. Yeah. uh, Them, the listeners. Thank you. (laughs) Listeners. You guys are all cool. Well, except for that one person, which... Well, <laughs> what are you no, talking? you're all cool. <laughs> I'm just goofing I, around. I'm but counting Dave, quickly here, John. I think I have 35 things on the Cool Stuff wow. Found list. Yeah. yeah. Great. And if you want to contribute to the Cool Stuff Found list before the next show... Or you ask know, one questions. Thing, Dave, or, or ask questions, or just say hi, or, uh, uh, you know... Whatever you'd like to do, uh, I would suggest that you get in touch with us. And one way you can get in touch with us, Dave, is to send us an email. If you want to send us an email, I would send it to feedback at macgeekab.com. Oh, no, 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 John. As I said before, it's feedback at macgeekab.com. Well, other than you kind of getting that wrong, I, no, I agree with you. Feedback at macgeekab.com. But, but that's not the only way, Dave. You could call us on the telephone. Or if you want to call us on the phone, what, what would you do? Um, I'd call on the phone. I'd call 206-666-GEEK, which is... Oh, I know this. Four, <laughs> after all, <laughs> four, three, three, five. And of course, Skype, which we're using right now. You could Skype us at... MacGeekGab. But that's Amazing. not what we use while we're recording the show, because, you know, we've got to make sure we, uh, you know, we, we, we can't be interrupted while we're doing the show here. Huh? I mean, you can you can call us and leave us a message on Skype while we're doing the show. Oh, of course, yes. right. That's that's what I meant. Now yeah, what else? Yeah, there's this Twitter thing, the official feed for the show, where you can get all sorts of updates about what's happening with the show. Is Mac Geekab? You can Mac follow Geekab. me at John F. Braun. It's one of yes. my favorite podcasts, and uh, it's probably also your favorite Twitter feed. Yes, it is. Which I like because the uh, client I use now can support multiple accounts, which is very cool. I, I'd and say I the name of your client, it. but every time I say it, I, I curse, and I'm worried about... Well, it's uh, your... your uh, yeah. Yeah, that one. We'll put For a link that, in the show notes, folks. Oh, uh, yes. No, it's an excellent client. Now dual, dual uh, account or multiple account support. I'm still using anyways, Twitter for the uh, Mac that I got through the Mac app. Are store. you kidding me? No, it's great. Didn't they introduce the, uh, I'm not going to say what it's called, but didn't they introduce a undesirable feature as of late? Is that in the Mac version? I think that's only in the iOS oh, version. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, the iOS version. They added a, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. 
uh, a trend bar, which you can't get rid of, which uh, has many people it, shaking their fists. That has not bothered me on the iPad. Maybe it's only on the iPhone version. And I, I use Twiddleator on my iPhone for, uh, for, for that, and I use Twitter's app on the iPad, but I haven't noticed any problems on the iPad. Actually, you know what I do? This is actually a little interesting workflow. Uh, I like to be alerted when, sometimes I like to be alerted when there are uh, replies to me and direct messages on Twitter, mm-hmm. and I don't like Twitter's iPhone app, and I didn't even like it before the current rev. But what they do offer, because they're Twitter, is they offer push notifications when there are, mm. um, when there's, you know, events that happen. You can have it, you can configure it per account. You can, you know, get pretty granular with it. So uh, what I do is I launch, every time after I reboot my iPhone, I launch Twitter's Twitter account on here, and, and then I quit. And But that starts up the whole notification process. Huh. And then I use Twiddleator to manage everything, but I get little uh, you know push alerts on my phone when uh, events happen that I want to know about. So it's it's good. I like it. It's yeah. fantastic. So de- it's so awesome. Desktop- it's great, John. I tell you, it's great. My fr- Oh, hi. Calm down, man. Okay. So on desktop, I use Yoru Fukuro. Y-O-R-U-F-U-K-U-R-O-U. I'll link to it, of course. We'll have to bleep that out, John, but they'll go to your link. But I like uh, Usfura is what uh, I use on the iPhone. Okay. Okay. And that's a nice one. Well, well, it does a lot of things I like, so it separates all the messages. But it also has, like the client I just mentioned, th- th- this just I love. I feel like a secret agent. It has a translate feature. Oh, that's cool. So for people that post things, especially I follow a few people that post things in Arabic. I mean, I can't read yeah. Arabic. But even yeah. in Spanish, which I'm kind of you know good at, sure. it'll translate using the Google Translate API, which to me is just so cool. That's, in addition I'm to the, check that out. That's cool. Huh. All right. Well, in addition, yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, 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 Twitter. Okay. I am. So we got Matt Geekab. Right. I am John F. Braun. Dave Hamilton is Dave Hamilton. Pilot Pete, who is being a pilot somewhere. Is Pilot Pete? <gasps> who, who else? Oh, Mac Observer, of course. Right. And Michael Johnston uh, on Twitter is also, of course, Michael Johnston in real life. And he is the one uh, that takes this podcast and converts it to AAC for us and for you. He's also the host of the We Have Communicators podcast that regularly features not only him, of course, but Jeff Gamut here of the Mac Observer and Adam Christensen of MacCast. And of course, here at the Mac Observer, he's managing our back end so well. I don't know what we do without you, Adam. Fantastic. And I don't know what we do without you, Michael, because uh, it's fantastic having you convert this show for us, too. We are surrounded by not only excellent talent, but excellent people. Uh, Cashfly.com provides all the bandwidth. The podcast marketplace includes the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, Yojimbo from Barebones Software, PDF pen from Smile, and Notebook from Circus Ponies all through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. And John, I think that's it. We get to uh, go. Hopefully, I'll be able to report from South by Southwest next week. Maybe we'll do this like Tuesday, Wednesday-ish after the uh, interactive se- uh, festival is over, and I can talk a little bit about that, and then we'll do cool stuff found if, uh, if we can make the technology. Yep. Your call. Cool. We'll have to test it uh, before then, John, to make sure it works. Because, you know, we don't want to get in the middle of, uh, of doing it, and, and then, you know, we don't want to get caught. 